0: Log Talk
1: Radio. The Bible, that's the book for me. The Bible, that's the book for me.
2: We are BLE, starting us off right. And now for the lesson, this is John MacArthur and the Walk of a True Christian, Part 1.
3: The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we'd like to send you a free booklet by John called Is It Real? It's all about helping you answer the vital question, is my salvation the real thing? Request your free booklet by writing to real at gty.org. That's real at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through June of 2022. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur.
4: We come now to the time in the Word of God, and I'm calling your attention to the book of Ephesians. I suppose if you were part of a church and you had gone to that church and attended that church, but maybe you never had committed your life to Christ, you now found yourself with that church, not yet a real believer, but a part of the church, and you found yourself under a concrete, multi-level parking garage sleeping on a cot while bombs were falling all over you. You might want to do a heart examination. To live in the starkness of the imminence of death changes everything. And I'm certain that there are people who in that situation have turned to the Lord. We're we're just grateful to have heard of some even this morning. It would not be a time when you would want to not be sure where you are headed. And after death, there are only two possibilities, heaven and hell, and you will live in one of those forever. So this is a time when it's understandable that people in the face of imminent death would, would want to come to the gospel and embrace that which will deliver them from condemnation, judgment, and hell, and bring them into the glories of heaven. And we also understand that this would be a time when believers would want to be certain that their salvation was the real thing. Now we know that the church is uh, made up of true believers and false wheat and tares. We know that because Jesus said that. And our Lord also said that in the day of judgment, many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, confessing Him, and He will say, Depart from Me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. And that is to say that there are people who will end up in the judgment moment believing they're headed for heaven only to find out they're not. They're headed to hell. Any kind of dire circumstance, any kind of life-threatening setting would make a person who profess to be a Christian, want to examine his or her heart to be certain. And I'm sure that's happening, because I know it just happens in general. I suppose if there's a common question that I'm asked, both uh, personally and by mail and on Grace To You radio, it comes up all the time, it is this question, how can I be sure I'm really a Christian? How can I be sure I'm really saved? Anybody who's a believer has faced the reality of a doubt here or there, wondering whether my salvation is real. But any kind of dire circumstance or even the reality that you're getting older or maybe you're unwell or perhaps uh, fearful of something that may overtake your life before you are sure you're a Christian. I understand that. Because you you want to know for sure. That's what I think the focus of our message to you this morning is. And it's really just a brief one. How do I know I'm really saved? Now, there are two things you have to consider. One is security. And the other is assurance. When I talk about security, I'm saying, is salvation forever? That is, if I have the real thing, is it eternal? Well, that's easy to answer. It's called eternal life. Well, what else would eternal life be but eternal? Yes, if you are truly saved, you have received eternal life Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. You are headed for heaven. Salvation is forever. You don't get it and lose it and hopefully get it back. It is forever. And I want to show you that. 1 Peter chapter 1 before we get to Ephesians. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3, and Peter is writing to some believers who are scattered, being persecuted. It's a hard time, and I'm sure they wanted to know the reality of their salvation. So Peter writes to them about the security of their salvation. Listen to what he says in verse 3 of 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God, in His His mercy, His great mercy, caused us to be born again. You don't see any role that we played there. God, in His great mercy, regenerated us to a living hope that is attached to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Christ arose, He lives, we rose in Him, we live as He lives. So, Peter is talking about the eternality of salvation. Because our salvation is in Christ, And Christ lives forever. We live forever. So we have a living hope, meaning a hope of eternally living. And Peter expands on that in the next verse, verse 4. There is prepared for us an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Again, Peter is saying, based upon the regenerating work of God out of His great mercy, we have been given a hope that lives because Christ lives. And when that hope is realized, we will receive an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved in heaven for you and for no one else. That is the security of our salvation. Further, he says in verse 5, that we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The full revelation of our final salvation and the receiving of that glorious heavenly inheritance is for us and no one else and we are protected by the power of God for that final revelation. So Peter is literally affirming the security of salvation. The security of salvation. You will one day be in glory, as it says at the end of verse 8, and greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, because you will obtain as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is security. Security is objective. It is based on the divine revelation, Scripture. Scripture says salvation is forever. If you have it, it is forever. But there's another word that is important, and that is the word assurance. Security is an objective reality. Assurance is a subjective reality. In security, you know salvation is forever. In assurance, you know you possess that salvation. That is critically important. So important that Paul says, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith so that you don't wind up having believed in vain or for nothing. What about assurance? Where do we go for that? Where do we go for the subjective? Where do we go for the confidence that our salvation is the real thing? Well, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And we'll look at verse 4. By his own glory and excellence, as it ends in verse 3, by these things, the glory and excellence of God He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. Again, all that awaits us in eternal glory is promised to us in the gospel. He granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. This is talking about, again, the nature of our salvation. We have become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, we possess the life of God. We have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We have been given promises that God will fulfill. Now we come to verse 5. Now, for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. He's saying, you are secure by the... Promises of God. You are secure by the power of God. You are already a partaker of the divine nature. You possess eternal life now. You have escaped from the corruption that is in the world by lust. But you must add to that reality these qualities, moral excellence, which is a word for virtue, Knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Why? Verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If these things are characteristic of your life and they are increasing, They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What it's to say is this. If these things are characteristic of your life, you possess the true knowledge of Christ. Your salvation is the real thing. On the other hand, verse 9, He who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Do you understand you can be a real believer and forget that you really are a true believer? You can lose your assurance. So in verse 10, he says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling that you are truly called to salvation certain about His choosing that you genuinely were elect, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Practice what things? That list. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. Where you have virtue in your life, you have assurance. You understand that's what He's saying. If those qualities are not obvious in your life, you have lost touch then with your salvation. If you want to make your calling sure and your choosing, your election sure, be diligent to make sure these things are characteristics of your life. So how do you know you're saved? not by a past event, not remembering a date, not remembering a prayer, but looking at your life and seeing the kinds of virtues, patterns of righteousness, godliness, that testify to a transformation. Assurance can be hard. It it can be. We can be... um, We can be insecure. We can lose our assurance. Assurance is hard to experience and it's hard to hold on to. Even though you know salvation is forever, there are times when you can really struggle to believe that you're actually a possessor of the true salvation. Why? Why is it hard? To have assurance. Why, why do I struggle with my assurance? Give you some reasons. Number one, convicting preaching. You you come and you sit under the Word of God, and the Word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4, and it goes into you, and it cuts you, and it dissects you, and it takes you apart, and it reveals your heart. And honestly, you probably wouldn't have that experience of wondering about your salvation if you were sitting in a place where the Word of God was dealt with superficially. But when you expose yourself to convicting preaching from the Word of God, you can struggle with your assurance. because you are being convicted by the Word of God. And the standard is so high. Which leads to a second reason people are insecure or lack assurance. It is this, guilt. Guilt. I talked to a man on the phone this week. Graduated from a Christian college many, many, many years ago, half a century ago. And he said... I was not a believer. I came out of that school. I lived 30 years as a homosexual. The worst, dissolute, unimaginable kind of life. He said, I came to Christ. And he said, now I spend four or five hours a day in the Word of God because I need that exposure to cleanse the garbage of 30 years. When you have vivid realities of your sinfulness and the standard of holiness is high, you 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 can very definitely struggle with assurance. There's a third reason people struggle with assurance, and it is that they misunderstand the gospel. They think that the gospel is God's plan to save you and then you keep yourself saved. So that they would say, yes, you're saved by grace, but you're kept by works. And if you're trying to keep yourself saved by your works, you will never have any assurance. And along that same line, there's a fourth reason why people struggle with Assurance, and it is because they have wrong ideas about forgiveness. I was reading this week about one viewpoint that said, when you're saved, God forgives all the sins of your past. That's true. But not the present and the future. You have to... You have to work out righteousness in the future. You have to name your sins and seek forgiveness. There's no lifelong blanket forgiveness. Forgiveness is only partial. If you believe that, of course you wouldn't have assurance. Because you know you can't keep yourself righteous. There's another reason why people struggle with assurance, and it's because they can't remember the time of their salvation. By the way, that's true for most people. I can't remember. Oh, if you're like me or many Christians, you probably grew up in a church, you prayed to be saved a thousand times or a hundred times and you are always trying to reach back and find out which of those was the real deal. <laughs> and you you never will know. Even when you think was the moment of your salvation may not have been. Maybe a moment you pray to prayer but the divine miracle of regeneration is is God's work on his schedule, not ours. So convicting preaching Guilt over sin, understanding a high standard of holiness, misunderstanding the gospel, not accepting full and complete forgiveness, no memory of the time of your true salvation. Those things can tamper with your assurance. There's another one. Strong impulses of the flesh. You keep going back to the same sins. Have you noticed? You don't all of a sudden come up with a brand new sin. People say to me, why do I do the same sins? And the answer is because they're ingrained in you. That's, that's the character or the lack of character, but that's the nature of your sinful flesh. You have sins that you prefer. And so, of course, you go back to those sins. You go back to them also because you have past carnal fulfillment in those sins. And when you think about the strong impulses of your flesh that seem to be making you recycle those same old sins, you might say to yourself, maybe I'm not really saved. Another element in life that will tamper with your assurance is a failure to see God's goodness in your trials. What do I mean by that? Well, you find out you have cancer. You find out you have to have a heart surgery. And you say, why is God doing this to me? Or one of your children denies the faith. Or uh, you thought you had... a A girl that you wanted to marry and she shunned you. Or you had a career in mind, and a goal in mind, or an objective. It could be a whole lot of things. Life is full of disappointment. And you can get on the sort of the pity side of all of that and say, "If, if God's supposed to be my Father and bless me with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? It's a failure to see God's good hand in the trials. It's a failure to go below the trial to the providence that's unfolding. You have to understand that life is full of those things. But Romans 8.28, right? That's why that verse is so popular. God orders all things so that they work out for what? For good to those who are the called. So all of those things can trouble you with regard to assurance. But there's one other thing that is the dominant reality, and it's just simply this, sin and disobedience. If there is in your life the appearance of sin and disobedience on a regular basis, you you will forfeit your assurance. For the reasons, some of the reasons we just mentioned. Guilt. And familiarity with those sins. But also, I have to tell you this. If you're walking in disobedience, the Holy Spirit will withdraw that assurance. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, right? So if you're not walking in the Spirit, you're not going to experience love, joy, and peace. We want assurance, and it's for those reasons. Let me just kind of lay it out simply. We want assurance because with assurance comes peace, joy, praise, love, gratitude, strength, patience, purity, hope, With assurance comes love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, all the fruit of the Spirit. We want that. We want assurance because we want those wonderful spiritual blessings. But you're not going to have them if you're sinning and disobedient. If that's going on in your life in some kind of routine way, even though the the dominant tyranny of sin has been broken because you have been made a servant of righteousness. If you see continual pattern of sin for a season or a time, that's going to take away your assurance. And honestly, it should. The only accurate evidence That you're a true believer is righteousness and godliness of life. Not as a perfection, but as a dominant direction. Let me show you this. Now we'll come to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. I want to go back to this and we'll make a few comments Verse 4, we remember this, God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Again, everything is divinely designed, planned, initiated, and achieved. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is a description of our salvation and its security. Look at it. God, out of His mercy, out of His love, made us alive with Christ by grace. We have been raised up with Christ. We are seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ, which means we we have a place in heaven. That's what Peter meant when he said we have an inheritance waiting there. That's all said and done. And in the ages to come, the Lord will pour out surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. So that's the reality of our eternal salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no, no one may boast. But then this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. As surely as He predetermined your justification, He predetermined your sanctification. God prepared beforehand your good works that you would walk in them. Justification and sanctification come together. We are spiritually transformed. Our lives are dramatically changed. It's not just that God declares us righteous by covering us with the righteousness of Christ. He transforms us. That's what verse 10 of chapter 2 is saying. Now, I want you to go over to chapter 4, which is where we have been for the last few times in Ephesians. And I I draw you to verse 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, Paul and the Lord agree, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. You, You don't walk that way anymore. How do they walk? And how did you walk before your conversion? Verse 18, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. They, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Okay, that's a description of unconverted people. They walk like pagans, because they are. They're futile in their mind, empty, darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, ignorant, hard-hearted, callous, and given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. You look at the world around you, the unrestrained world in which we live now, And you wonder, how can people be so dissolute, so reprobate, live at such an aggressive level of going from one transgression to another as fast as they can possibly go? It's because that's who they really are. And the last word in verse 19 is very important. Unconverted people pursue sensuality and impurity with greediness. They never have enough. They're greedy. They never have enough. You and I as believers may sin, but but we're not greedy to sin. We're not longing to sin, lusting to sin. We don't have this dominating greediness to go to the next sin and the next sin and the next sin and the next sin. How do I know that? Because verse 20 says this, You did not learn Christ in that way. You don't live like that. You don't think like that. You don't function like that. Yes, you can fall into sin and disobedience and you will forfeit your assurance. But if you're a true believer, those are the exceptions to your righteousness. And you don't pursue sensuality and every wicked thing with intense greed. You didn't learn Christ in that way. Verse 21, If indeed you have heard Him, have been taught in Him just as the truth is in Jesus. And here's what you learn. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self when you come to Christ. That old self is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. But you have laid aside the old self, and you have become renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's exactly what 2.10 says. God has ordained that we walk in good works. Here, God has created us in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We are dramatically different. When Paul wrote Ephesians, he also at the same time wrote Colossians. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Just a few more thoughts. Chapter 3, verse 1. If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. This is exactly what Peter says. Add to your faith moral excellence, which is virtue, and all those other things that we read. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're a completely new creature. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. That's security. When Christ comes in glory, you'll be there because you were raised with Christ, because you were seated at the right hand of God with Christ, you'll be there when He comes to reign. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come on the sons of disobedience, In them you also once walked when you were living in them. You once walked that way, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the One who created Him. I mean, the language here is so rich. You have been transformed. Totally transformed. And you see the reality of that in your righteousness, in your godliness, and in your virtue, even though it falls short. Now, back to Ephesians chapter four verse one Therefore I the prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Walk worthy of this calling. This is a a calling of a salvation call. Walk worthy with this calling consistent with its godly and righteous nature. Verse 17, again, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Not like you used to. Don't go that way. Chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love just as Christ loved you. Verse 8, walk as children of light. Verse 15, walk wisely. In other words, this is a call for obedience. This is the definition of the Christian life. It's a walk. It's a step at a time. One step at a time. Parapatane, from which we get the English word peripatetic, which means to walk around. We live the Christian life one step at a time. One day at a time. One moment at a time. Romans 8, Galatians 5 says we walk... In the spirit. Second Corinthians five says we walk by faith. Second John, third John say we walk in truth. First John two says we walk as Christ walks. This is the evidence of true salvation. This is the evidence. And that is what Paul says. Go back to chapter four of Ephesians. Since you have laid aside the old self, verse 22. Since you are being renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 23. Since you have put on the new self that has already been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth and bears the likeness of God, verse 25. Therefore, this is how you live. This is how you live. You lay aside falsehood. Speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. You're angry, but you don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. You don't give the devil an opportunity. Verse 28, you don't steal anymore. You share. Verse 29, your speech is not filthy. It's edifying. Verse 30, you don't grieve the Holy Spirit who is grieved by unrighteousness. Yes, you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's your security. But if you want to enjoy assurance, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. And this is the key. It doesn't say if you do this, God in Christ will forgive you. It says you do this because God in Christ, what? Has forgiven you. You don't earn your salvation, but this is how it is manifest. So that's the character of this section of Ephesians that we barely touched. In fact, that was one page in my notes. But the message is, is simple and profoundly important. The Lord wants you to enjoy your salvation, not just in heaven, but now. He wants you to have peace and joy and hope and assurance. Even though you're under the powerful preaching of the Word of God, even though you understand the high standard of holiness, even though you feel strong impulses of the flesh, even though you battle with sin. This is the Christian life. We are new creatures. We struggle to live fully as new creatures because our bodies are not yet redeemed. But you need to understand your salvation is secure. And you can enjoy the assurance that comes with true obedience. Father, we thank You for Your wonderful Word. Everything is laid out so specifically. We don't define our salvation by some mystical, esoteric feeling. The confidence and assurance that we are saved comes to us by how we walk one step at a time. As we walk in the Spirit, walk in the truth, walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom, walk worthy one step at a time. And as we do that, Blessed Holy Spirit, you assure our hearts. The Spirit of God shows us we belong to You, O God. The Spirit shows us. It gives us internal comfort, not just the external comfort of Scripture truth, but the internal comfort comes to an obedient Christian directly from the Holy Spirit who declares to us that we are the children of God. And it's in that fullness of joy that we can and should live. And we pray, Lord, for everyone here who doesn't know the Savior, that they would come to Him. Grant them life, Lord, for Your own glory. May Your people always be adding to their faith the kinds of things that bring assurance and with it all the joys of heaven on earth. For your glory we ask all these things and seek your strength. Amen. You've been listening to
3: John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You.
1: Mighty Fortress.
5: Does common design mean common ancestry? This is Ken Ham with a passion for sharing God's word with the world. A common argument for evolution is the similarities between creatures. Evolutionists will say those similarities are evidence of common descent from a shared ancestor. But the idea of common descent isn't something we observe. It's just an evolutionary assumption. And there are plenty of examples of creatures that have shared features which evolutionists will say aren't related. They just look similar, the argument goes, because creatures happen to evolve the same features. So, similarity is evidence for common ancestry, except when it's not. The Bible gives a much better explanation. God created.
0: God's word is true. Discover how we can know this when you visit us at answersradio.com and listen to this program again or hundreds of others like it at answersradio.com.
6: Yeah. He made us all you. Yeah, God made us all you. God made me and
7: you. Think children. No.
6: is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as a gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go yeah At the cross we see what God's love is about. There's no type of person that Jesus left out. Because Jesus died and rose from the grave, all those who trust in the Lord will be saved. In the book of Revelation, chapter number seven, the church from all times is gathered in heaven. Each tribe and people, language and nation, all thanking God for the gift of salvation. Together, forever, with saints of all kinds, through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine. This is exactly what God has designed when God made me and you. Let's go. Though we all Uh, have an infinite story. God made me and you. He made us all, y'all. God made me and and you.
2: For our joy. For our joy.
6: Different colors and different shades All differently and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display.
7: God made me and you
6: For all of our you, all our loss All of great for the cross Jesus died, rose and paid the cross God
2: made me and
6: you Different colors and different shades All differently and wonderfully made Through each the glory of God display. God made me and you all about you, all are lost All of great need for the cross Jesus died, rose, and paid
5: the cross God me and you Light before the sun? This is Ken Ham, author of the devotional commentary for the family, Creation to Babel In the first few verses of Genesis, we read God said, let there be light, and there was light But if you keep reading, you'll learn the sun wasn't created until three days later. So what was this first light? Well, Scripture doesn't say, so we can't know for sure. Some have suggested maybe it was God's glory, or angels, or a proto-sun, or simply an unnamed temporary light source. So why did God create this light, whatever it was, instead of just making the sun right away? Well, Scripture doesn't say, but cultures have always tended to worship the sun as a god. Maybe God created it on day four to show that the sun isn't God, only the Creator is.
0: Find more answers to your questions about Genesis and creation at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to enjoy free email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com. This little light,
1: this little light, gonna let it shine, let it shine, gonna let it shine, let it shine this all right.
5: When were angels created? This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Ministry of Answers in Genesis and The Ark Encounter. The Bible tells us exactly on which days of creation that light, dry land, sea creatures, and man were created. But it doesn't say when angels were created. Now we know they were created by God. The Bible says God created all things, including all things invisible, and principalities, and powers. The book of Job describes the angels celebrating when God laid the foundations of the earth. That was either on day one when God created the earth or day three when God created the dry land. We can't know for sure on which day angels were created, but it's likely it was on either day one or day three. But what we do know for sure is that God made all things in six days.
0: Have more questions? Get answers when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll find answers to questions about science, the Bible, creation, and more at AnswersRadio.com.
1: Perfect spot
5: Satan fall? This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to God's Word and the Gospel. Yesterday we learned that angels were probably created on day one of Creation Week. Now we know Satan is a fallen angel but when did this sinful pride get him cast to earth? The Bible doesn't tell us but it does give a few clues. At the end of the Creation Week God pronounced everything he'd made very good Since everything was very good, this must have included the angels, even the ones that would eventually rebel. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So it's very unlikely Satan rebelled on that day. From all this, I believe Satan's fall probably happened sometime after the end of the creation week. But again, We just can't know for sure.
0: Listen to this program again or view a complete transcript when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com.
8: out
1: of Haiti, the largest, most powerful earthquake in the region's history. The federal judge's
9: ruling is allowed to stand. This year's National Day of Prayer could likely be the country's last. I will be done.
4: I'm, I'm blessed. happen
1: the blessed. people Worldwide has reached one billion for the first time since 1970. For this day, a daily bread and
4: forget
1: A
2: few moments ago, something
7: crashed into the South Tower of the World Trade Center. But the Lord from evil, but thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me.
5: Contradiction in Genesis? This is Ken Ham, author of the eye-opening book Six Days and Church Compromise. Many people claim Genesis chapters 1 and 2 contradict each other. But do they? Genesis 1 gives us an overview of Creation Week with just a few verses on the creation of man on day 6. But Genesis 2 gives us the expanded account of day 6. So what's the problem? Well, you may hear that Genesis 1 says animals were created before Adam and Eve but Genesis 2 says it was after. This is an example of a supposed contradiction. When Genesis 2 was translated into English, some translations chose to say the Lord God formed every beast of the field, but others correctly translated as had formed. There's no contradiction.
0: Plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky when you go to our website at AnswersRadio.com. Find resources for the whole family at AnswersRadio.com.
6: in the image of the beautiful most high. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Cause in the day you eat it, you're surely gonna die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. be
9: talked about how a psychopath uh, is not going to be susceptible to guilt feeling Uh, that said uh, how then would a psychopath respond to the gospel because really becoming a christian is recognizing our guilt so you as somebody who got saved in prison you haven't felt remorse or guilt you would say but at the same token you recognize your guilt can you
10: help explain what that looks like a little bit yeah, a couple of things. And uh, I've actually heard from Christians over the years who've, who've seen me give my testimony say, yeah. uh, you're not really saved. You're not really a Christian because you're sitting here giving this testimony and talking about all these horrible things you've done. And you're not weeping over it. You're showing you're showing no emotional reaction to anything you're talking about. And it's important to keep in mind that, that repentance means turning away, you know, yeah. turning away. And a, a psychopath isn't going to feel bad about things he's done. He can turn away from things he's done. So... Uh, we are capable of saying, uh, hey, I once thought that was a good thing to do, and I recognize that whatever my feelings happen to be, I'm not supposed to do those kinds of things. Right? There is there's a God who has established a moral order, and even though I don't have certain feelings that other people have, I can recognize through what Jesus has taught that there is this moral order. There's a right and wrong, and however I happen to feel about it, um, I have a, an obligation To obey my creator and the one who has saved me, and so, um, so we're capable of that kind of moral reasoning. Uh, The flip side is the flip side is that um, sociopaths and psychopaths can often end up doing some really horrible things in life. Uh, It's estimated that around 50% of serial killers are psychopaths. So people can end up living normal lives, but they can end up doing some very horrible things. And so, in that sense, it can be able, it, it can be a bit easier than for normal people to show them how horrible they are, right? In other words, you can, even though they don't have the feelings, you've got a a person who's lived a nice, good life. It can be very hard to convince that person, hey, you are in need of a savior. If you can show a a psychopath that there is some sort of moral order after he's done really horrible things in life, you can say, look, you are in need of a savior. And, yeah, I think I am. Yeah, I like to distinguish two kind of between
9: the fact of guilt and guilt feelings, you know, like there's the moral law, right and wrong. You break the moral law. You might not feel guilty, but you still are guilty. Somebody commits a crime, they might not feel guilty, but they can still be accused of their guilt. And what I feel like you have experienced in your life is a recognition of your guilt, absent of the feelings. And i got to say, David, personally, as I've reflected on your story, I think that your faith in Christ could be a heck of a lot deeper than many professed Christians and Christians, because, look, let's face it, if we didn't have the feeling of guilt to help sanctify us and tame us, how much would we want to get away with? And here's a man who's pursuing the heart of God faithfully and sharing the gospel, and I just thank you for that, because I think that the challenge that you would have to live faithfully, absent of that grace of feeling our wrongdoing, I would say that kudos to you, ma'am, for doing that, and keep up your message, we need to hear that.
8: commonly used word around here. I hope my football team wins the Super Bowl. I hope Johnny asks me to prom. I hope it snows today so I don't have to go to school. I hope I get that job. I get that raise. I pass the test. I score the winning point. I get the car. I don't have to kiss, and he'll get Thanksgiving more seriously. I hope my friend gets better. I hope I do something great with my life. I hope one day there's world peace. Hope. We say it and we hear it all the time, and I don't want to trivialize it or disregard the aforementioned, but honestly, those are temporary things and they're uncertain at best not that they aren't real or to the wrong, but let's be honest, if your team doesn't win, Johnny doesn't ask you to prom, if it doesn't snow, you don't get that job or the raise or pass the test. If you don't get the car and Annie Hoga happens to smack a big wet one on you, you're going to get through it. And even if your friend doesn't get better, you don't do something great with your life, and even even if there's never world peace, all of the outcomes are uncertain, and whether they happen or not the way you want doesn't really change much in the grand I hope I get that raise, I hope I get that raise, I hope I get that raise, it's actually going to make it
11: in jesus christ god himself dwells in you sealing you with the spirit of promise the holy spirit sealing that covenant that god brought you into till the day of redemption when he presents a church a bride for his bridegroom the lord jesus christ you are going to be in that group spotless and without blame why so that god can be glorified for saving a people that did not deserve it. And that is why you are the hope of glory in Christ. That is your hope. Compare that to a butterscotch Sunday. Hope I get one of those. They're delicious. A hope that I win the lottery. Ooh, you could get millions of dollars, which just flies away on frivolous purchases that ultimately will get burned up. That's not the Christian hope. Hoping that you'll get a job. Hoping that you'll win that woman or man. Hoping that you'll have X number of children. All things that certainly have significance, but pale in comparison to the hope that is in you of glory. What sort of hope does the Christian have that you and I we'll be gathered together, we will be ushered into God's kingdom and presented to the Lord Jesus Christ as his gift so that he can receive the full reward of his suffering and for all of eternity. He's not just going to keep us around and go, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I saved those people over there. Uh-uh. We get to reign with him. This is not a oo. I sure hope that that happens, nail-biting sort of affair. No, no, no. This is sealed. It is done. It has been determined, and it will be delivered in full because Jesus finished that work so that your hope isn't just wishing on a star. It is secured in
8: How did the LGBTQ movement brainwash and win the culture? Three things. Desensitizing, jamming, and conversion. Uh, By the way, these are the three steps to brainwashing. Step one, desensitizing. Desensitizing. Um, To desensitize straights to gays and gayness, inundate them in a continuous flood of gay-related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion possible. If straights can't shut off the shower, they may at least eventually get used to being wet. Step two... So what you do is you portray people who are against same-sex marriage as being akin to Nazis, skinheads, and the KKK. Since nobody wants to be accused of being a Nazi, a skinhead, or the KKK, eventually nobody's going to want to be accused of being anti-same-sex marriage. Step three, conversion. It isn't enough that anti-gay bigots should become confused about us or even indifferent to us. We are safest in the long run when they can actively, when we can actively make them like us. Okay, let's get started because time is short and we're talking about sexual morality here. Always a hot topic with all kinds of opinions and feelings about it. With most people ending up in the campus says all consensual sex is morally good. Now, it's true that good things come from sex like emotional connection, oneness, pleasure, and life. But bad things also come from sex like abuse, rape, shame, and even death. So what makes these things good or bad? To answer that, we've got to dare to ask bigger questions. And those are these. What in the world do we mean by good and bad? How do we know what good and bad is? What's the standard? Fantastic questions so that lead me right where I want to go. Straight down the rabbit hole of morality's reality, so we can come back up with a carrot of the truth, whatever that means. Fact is, it's either true that there are such things as objective moral standards, duties, and obligations. Or it's true that there are not such things. Now, if it's true that there are not such things, then nothing is ultimately wrong or right. Rape is no better or worse than helping an old lady across the street. And slavery is no better or worse than buying an ice cream cone. Now, if it's true that there are objective moral standards, duties, and obligations, then those things are well-objective, which means they don't change because of a society's preference or a person's feeling or opinion. Now, hold on there, a hillbilly second. You talk so dang fast. I'm going to need some metaphors or similes or something similar, so something certifiable or shareable, son. Okay, answer me this. If you prefer that 100 plus 50 equals 25, does that make it true? How about this one? If you feel that murdering your mother just for the kicks of it is morally right, does that make it so? No. It's the answer to both of those. Because just like feelings and preferences don't change objective reality, they don't change objective morality either. Whoa, wait a second, you say, but math has a standard. Morality doesn't, right? Wrong. God is a standard. In fact, it's only because God exists that he's eternal and perfectly good, that universal, objective, moral goodness exists. And because he loves us so much, he has revealed his nature and good standards in the Bible. Listen up. The rock, that's God. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. You spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Romans seven twelve sums it up like this. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So the Bible clearly declares that God's work is perfect, he is just, holy, good, and cannot lie. So then, whatever he says is right and for our good. So then, the gazillion dollar question when it comes to the morality of sex is really, what does God say about sex? So, drum roll please. Stop. Hammer time. Sorry. Genesis one twenty seven to twenty eight. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Pretty plain people, God's clear intent for sex is one man with one woman and one marriage becoming one flesh for one life. So then, any kind of sex outside of those boundaries is not right and cannot be for your good. Now, we get it. Lots of people are on the making-feel-good question instead of the telling-the-truth question. So undoubtedly, some watching this will call us haters or foes of some kind in hopes to shut us up. But real love will not, dare I say, cannot shut up about truth or pat someone on the back and tell them that whatever they do, even if it clearly violates God's principles, is okay. All this to say that this notion that all consensual sex is morally good or just a matter of preference or feelings or opinions, has been debunked.
11: Can you imagine Carl Kirby, the voice of debunked from Reasons for Hope, visiting your son or daughter's university campus? That's what he does with a crew traveling around the country <laughs> to bring truth to university campuses, whether it is received with happiness and back laughing or not, the kids need the truth, reasons for hope. They will bring it.
2: Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E T-O-L-D- radi oc dot truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradio show at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradio show at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then told radio That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot com. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. <laughs>
7: we Beautiful, beautiful. You never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change.
1: Beautiful, beautiful. You never
9: change, never change. Welcome to the one minute apology. One minute apology. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide curious question. Here's a little twist on words. Did Jesus think Jesus was God? Yeah, don't you hear this all the time from people who will say, well, gosh, you know, Jesus was Jesus never even claimed to be God. You know, this is one of the claims I used to, actually myself, make with with, uh, Christians. I wasn't really a careful reader of Scripture. And it wasn't really until I started to, uh, to examine forensic statement analysis where we're looking at every little word a suspect says and his use of pronouns and how he introduces things and how he describes people that really helps us to see what the suspect thinks about the victim, what the suspect is trying to get us to believe, even though it's not true. So when I first looked at the Gospels in the Old Testament, I, it's the, the stark contrast between Old Testament prophets, and I don't care if it's Ezekiel, Isaiah, if it's a minor prophet, Amos, I don't care who it is, prophets in the Old Testament, when they were announcing a truth claim from God, would say, thus the Lord Almighty says, or the Lord God says, or they would always announce that this information is coming from the Lord Almighty. Yeah. But Jesus never, ever did that. There's not a single time you'll find him in the gospel saying, the Lord Almighty says. Instead, he'll say something, if it's in the King James, verily, verily, I say to you, or, or in the NESB, I tell you the truth. It's Jesus saying, I am telling you this. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's either, and I, I, you must have known that people who are hearing this have so accustomed to the prophets of every generation announcing a proclamation from God as, thus the Lord God Almighty says to you, when they heard him say, I say this to you, I mean, it's, a, it's pretty clear that Jesus' words give him away. Even if you didn't have a direct claim from Jesus that Jesus is saying, hey, by the way, guys, I'm God. Those kinds of statements and that personal pronoun use indicate he thought he had the authority of God and never felt compelled to say, God's telling you this, I'm telling you this. And that clearly, I think Jesus understood himself to be the, 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 the God of the universe who created everything.
11: The Bible and studying history and looking around and actually talking to people we don't need CRT which is a dead-end street the view of University of Rhode Island the view we've, oh I see this is the view of the University of Rhode Island director of graduate studies of history science statistics and technology are all inherently racist he said Wow, I had no idea. Jimmy, you ever you ever built anything? Yeah. What? I built tables. Ah, uh, racist. Tables are racist. Tables are racist. <laughs> you just sorry. made them to oppress people.
8: Yeah, yeah. No idea. did. Yeah. To the people that couldn't afford to buy them from me. Uh-huh.
11: <laughs> so, so tell me, disc jockey. Yeah? You ever spin discs and talk on the radio? Absolutely. That was racist, too. <laughs> because you did it. Now... How unhelpful is that? People want to call it a helpful analytical tool. Well, it is an entirely destructive conversational tool. Durham University is calling on professors in the math department to ask themselves if they're citing work with mostly white or male mathematicians. And speaking of Marxism, (laughs) because that's basically where the CRT business is going, and that would make sense because it initially does have its genesis, in a fellow named Karl Marx, it's not coincidence, that's where we get Marxism from. Antonio Gramsci took the idea and said, let's just change this up a little bit, make it oppressor and oppressed, and that framework flourished. It was introduced into law schools in maybe the 90s, but it's caught on everywhere now. Some law schools just totally reject it. They, people like to say it's a legal theory. Well, okay, it's a legal theory. What does that have to do with understanding issues of skin color? And the Bible informs me on that. Not that you probably need this, but I thought it was relatively pithy, especially in this era where so many students, they think Marxism might be really groovy. It has to be about 15 years ago, maybe 14 years ago. I went to Georgia Tech, wandering around to witness to the kids. I clearly didn't belong there. They're all really smart. And I went to the board. It's the place where you pin up your activity, room for rents, you're selling a car, books, etc. Here's the play that's going to be performed. And there was a banner, and not on that pole, but a lot of them on that poll, and other polls announcing that the Communism Club was meeting. I was like, wait, 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 wait." that was probably 2008. What? The kids are being slammed with it, and it is antithetical to biblical Christianity. Thank you to Joseph Matera for this. Socialism is against the biblical view of the nuclear family. Can't argue that. They don't like family because they know it's the bedrock institution of our culture. Marxists argue that, quote, the nuclear family performs ideological functions for capitalism. The family acts as a unit of consumption and teaches passive acceptance of hierarchy. It is also the institution through which the wealthy pass down their private property to their children, thus reproducing class inequality. That sounds biblical, doesn't it? Number two, socialists claim education belongs solely to the state. Well, that's kind of where we're at right now, isn't it? I think if the state could shut down homeschooling, they'd do it in a heartbeat. If they could get rid of Christian schools, I think they would be just fine with that. Number three, socialists claim the state deserves the highest allegiance. No, Jesus deserves the highest allegiance. Family is valued by God because he created the institution. God actually likes these things, and he has instructed parents, you're the one responsible for training up your children. Now, you can let others do that too, but you're responsible for it. The state wants to remove that responsibility from you and take it upon themselves. Talk about chutzpah. You should know that in many communist nations, like the former Soviet Union, north korea china bibles are confiscated church buildings are burned and evangelism is illegal they see christianity as a rival religion to the authority of the humanistic secular state and that goes against the biblical command to put god's kingdom first worship him and him only should you serve number four socialists believe in the abolition of private property in land and application of all rents of land to public purposes god thinks that private property ownership is a good thing. That's why we're not supposed to covet. Five, socialism advocates a progressive income tax. It's not the way you see it in the Bible. It was a flat tax in the Bible. Everybody paid the same amount. Now, sure, some people paid less or more, but it was a fair taxation system. Socialism ain't. That's why progressive taxes, not a biblical model. Number seven, it reminds me, do you recall seeing Bodie Backham, He was sitting on a panel. I think he was with, oh, what's the name of the guy? He's got the pointy goatee, and they were they were talking about CRT. This is like several years ago. And the moderator said to Bodie, so what, what are you going to say next, that progressive taxes are like communists?
9: Here at ViewRail, we offer two different
11: options for metal post cable railing systems. Signature. Yeah, they are exactly what they are the moderator was surprised in socialism the state attempts to control all communication well they shouldn't because we are to have the freedom to proclaim the gospel number eight in socialism a utopia comes from a revolutionary change from the outside in christianity it is a change from the inside out Number nine, socialism categorizes people as either the oppressed or the oppressors. That's not the way God sees it. We are to judge with impartiality. This this would be like going into a court of law, and it's, it's preposterous. But that's exactly what is being encouraged with CRT, that the the judge or the jury sees the has to see the color of the skin and make their decision based on the color of the skin. Or imagine. If that doesn't sound preposterous to you imagine that the jury had to know how much you made and if you made more than the person that you're in court with well you're you're probably you're the guilty one you go wait be, 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 be. not fair exactly socialism categorizes people in an unbiblical way the bible categorizes people though in two different camps saved not safe. Number 10, socialists believe the government is responsible for all social care in socialist and communist countries. The state is responsible for caring for the poor. All goods and services provided by the state. Where did they get all that stuff? Oh, yeah, they took it from people who were producers. That's called stealing. That's called a redistribution of wealth. That is not recognizing hard work and the reward that comes with it. I think we have a parable about that. It doesn't recognize what a blessing it is to have some things that help you to achieve things. All that to say, in case you'd forgotten, communism, it ain't a good idea. You might want to share this list with your children because that's not what they're going to tell them if you send them to public school. Until tomorrow, go serve
8: your king. That was Rector of Top for you. I used to be Truth We Radio. And what I'm going to do for you is i play a song. And thanks for listening to me. Melissa Cantrell here on Truthy Toll Radio. And we're on Sundays. Check us out here on Block Talk Radio. And thank you for listening. And we'll to go out with Nancy and Friends and the V-I-V-E-L-E. Bye for now. The
1: B-I-B-A.